0: First Thessalonians chapter one is where we're at. Uh, First question or first thing I want to point out is uh, make sure you get a copy of the sermon outline because there are application questions at the very end of the outline. And if you don't look at the application questions, if we don't make the effort to apply what we hear, then we're really not hearing Uh, You know, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people believe that you really haven't learned something until you've implemented it into your life, uh, that the learning process involves application. Uh, So you can even read those questions and then perhaps scribble down some of your thoughts as we go through the message this morning and kind of get a head start on that. But um, first thing I want to ask you is, do you love your church? Uh, I guess I'm talking to. Uh, First of all, specifically those of you that are part of the family here at Grace Brethren Church. Uh, And then, of course, if you're visiting here today, but you have a church of your own. Do you love your church? I heard two. (laughs) Okay, All right. You thought it was rhetorical because you're not supposed to answer when someone in the pulpit asks you a question. That's not right. But what you're going to do. How about. If you're part of the Grace Brethren Church family here at Norwalk, you don't have to stand up or anything, but just speak out loud.
1: What do you love about your church?
0: Okay, that's great. It's a little generic. It teaches truth. You love the people. What about the people? Why do you love your church so much? Nothing. Bible to Bible and the Bible, the Bible. Is that still written on there? <laughs> yeah, that's still that's the Grace Brethren model. Why else do you love your church? Pardon me? It's like a family that she didn't have. I love our generosity. We're small, but so generous. Something else. Why do you love your church? You guys don't think I'm lame. Amen. <laughs> well. Yeah. Sure. Sure. That's. That's. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. We love. We love you. Is what you're trying to say, For who you are. Yeah. We love our church. That's good. That's a good thing. Uh. And the word church, as we look into Thessalonians, we find uh, that, you know, we understand that not every church is the same. Not every church is as good as another church. Not every church is ideal. But we do understand that some churches are more ideal than others. And what do we mean by ideal? They follow uh, the pattern of what God expects a church to be. And the churches... In Thessalonica, because I believe there were probably multiple churches in that region and they would meet in homes. They were an exemplary church. They were a church that every church should want to emulate. Paul loved these Christians in these churches in Thessalonia. Uh, And he wasn't there very long before he got run out of town. We know that. Uh, But he did send Timothy back. Uh, To care for these people. He loved them dearly. And we're going to learn today uh, why he loved them and what we should emulate about them or imitate about them. We know that no church is perfect. Some are more ideal than others. Uh, Three times in First Thessalonians, Paul thanks God for these people, for these Christians. And, you know, up here is our thanks living jar. Uh, We're focusing on being a thankful people this year. Uh, This jar, we're keeping track every week. We're supposed to jot down something that we're thankful for. And we're going to pull some of those out pretty soon uh, coming up in the future and remind ourselves that we have so much to be thankful for. Uh, Paul was constantly thanking God for the Thessalonians uh, and for a lot of uh, different reasons Uh, we want to see here. Uh, First of all. Uh, He was thankful for them because he understood that they were an elect people. Now, we read the passage earlier. Now, I know I mentioned the word election. And all of a sudden, if you're real quiet, you can hear this. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But election is one of those basic doctrines that maybe we don't get excited about. Uh, We often don't understand. And to be quite honest, humanly speaking, it is difficult to wrap our minds around the doctrine of election. But I want to encourage you today. If you're here today and you're young in the faith. This is a core biblical doctrine that we need to understand. Or maybe you're older in the faith. Then you still need to listen, I guess. Uh, But. Don't shoot the messenger. okay? I'm just some people get really worked up by these kinds of doctrines like election and providence and all that. We can't deny that it's in the scripture. He calls them what? Well, in chapter one, we already read. He says he knew that God had chosen them in verse four. Uh, And then later in Second Thessalonians, he says what? God's choice of you or God chose you from the very beginning salvation, And what did Paul tell the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter one? That God chose you for salvation before the world even began. Before you even appeared on the radar, you were chosen by God for salvation. Now, is that meant to give you a big head? No, of course not. It's meant to make us just marvel and wonder. A lot of people get the questions mixed up. Why would God allow anyone to go to hell when the real question is, why would God allow anyone to go to heaven? That's the real question. And if he does not elect some, Paul says in Romans, then all are lost. Because there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks after God. We have all together turned away from him and become worthless. And it gets even better. The poison of vipers is on our lips and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's like a real warm hug, right? Stay away from Romans 3 if you're looking to pump up your self esteem, because it's not going to happen in Romans chapter 3. Uh, but he mentions that they are an elect people, one of the reasons uh, that he loves them. One person said this try to explain election and you may lose your mind, but try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. It is hard to understand. But I think one of the things God wants us to do is to marvel uh, at his work, at his grace, at his mercy. Notice that whenever the word church is used, it means what? It literally means called out ones. God is calling out. And whenever you see that people are being called out, it indicates in the scriptures a divine election that God is doing something, that God is doing something. God is calling out people from this world to bring to himself. In John 17, Jesus refers to believers seven times as those that the father gave me out of this world. Seven times in one chapter, Jesus confirms or recognizes divine election. I love seeing so many people writing. I uh, fear that today I put too much on the screen and too little on your outlines. I had the flu for a few days this week. I hope you don't get germs from the paper that you have, but that's the risk you're going to take. Let's look at a few things about election to help us understand. When I say election and I say salvation, those are interchangeable. OK, election means that God chooses us to be saved from our sins and given eternal life. It may be very difficult to explain it, and it is humanly speaking, to understand how we can be held human and responsible for our sin while at the same time God elects us to salvation. But we know that the Bible teaches both. You can jot it down to the side somewhere and read it later, but Acts chapter 2, verse 23 is a great place to go that mentions both human responsibility and divine election in the same verse happening at the same time. The fact that God divinely chooses me to be saved does not remove my responsibility before him as a sinner. I don't know how to explain it. I just know that's what the word of God says. I really think the doctrine of divine election in the scripture is one of those times where God's kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit in giving me the privilege of kind of seeing how he operates. First of all, we know this about salvation, that it begins with God. If we don't grasp anything else when we leave here today, we want to grasp that salvation begins with God. It does not begin with me. I'm not saved because I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saved because God chose me from eternity past to be appointed unto salvation. The initiating will for salvation is not man's. It's always God's, isn't it? John 15 says you have not chosen me but I have chosen you. And then we already mentioned Ephesians 1 four. God, the father, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. When did God choose you for salvation? What's it say before the foundation of the world? Read it again out loud with me before the foundation of the world. Does that blow your mind? Does that blow your mind? I mean, how old is Earth if you're not an evolutionist and if you're. Uh, Young earth creationists, you believe the earth is probably uh, 10 to 15,000 years old, collective gasp, not millions, but just to think that even before time began, God knew you, God knew you. I would throw in there Psalm 139. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made before I knew you, you wove me together in my mother's womb before any of my days had begun. You had already numbered them. It's comforting to know that God knew me tens of thousands of years from eternity past. He knew me. Secondly, divine election or salvation involves God's love. Yes. But remember that it is God's grace that saves sinners. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We know those well, don't we? For it is by... Grace, you have been saved through faith, and this didn't come from yourself. It is the gift or work of God. He says he calls them beloved brethren in chapter one. So we know God's love is involved. And he says in verse one, grace to you. And of course, we know what grace is, right? If you're going to define grace, you can just define it with two words, right? Undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. That's what grace means. Thirdly, we know this about divine election. Or we know this about salvation. And this is a great time to be thinking about this question. Do you know for certain that you are born again? This is food for thought. First question. What proofs of salvation from First Thessalonians chapter 1 are present in your own life? So think about your own personal salvation as we go over this. Salvation involves faith, right? Man's will participates in response to God's promptings. He says in verse six of First Thessalonians, chapter one, you received the word from us talking about their faith. And then he says in verse nine that they turned away from idols. What does it mean to turn away from something and turn toward God? That's repentance. So salvation must involve both repentance and faith. You are saved by grace through faith. The spirit of God used the word of God to generate faith. That's what Paul's saying. That's why we're always saying when you're witnessing to someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, give them scripture because the scripture is powerful When used by the Holy Spirit to open someone's heart for salvation. And people may look at you like you're from Mars. Now, Minnie and I, we get our hair done at the same place. So she has a different style than I do. So I found out one day I was sitting in the chair and someone started talking to me. I look over, it's her. So I promised I wouldn't tell him what you looked like at the moment when you were getting your hair done. That's just between us. But you know what? You know what made me look over there when I heard someone talking? Because I heard someone sharing the gospel. I heard someone giving scripture to the lady that was cutting her hair. I thought, ooh, that's cool. Who is that? Ooh, that's Minnie Deluna. Hey. (laughs) She was sharing the gospel. She was just mentioning some verses. And then you leave it in in the Lord's hands. The scripture is powerful. It requires faith on the hearer. It requires repentance. A turning away from the old life that was lived, says God has chosen you in chapter two, verse 13 of second Thessalonians, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and what by faith in the truth, by faith. So faith is involved in salvation. It is our response. But what's interesting, we mentioned Ephesians. I know this is turning to a theological seminar. That's okay. But when we mentioned Ephesians chapter two, we said you've been saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourself. What does he mean? This is not of yourself. If you look at the original language, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this grace and faith did not come from yourself. It is the gift of God. So we can't even take credit to ourselves for having the faith to accept the message when we heard it to receive salvation. Because God draws us to him. God opens our heart, gives us the faith to believe the message. God at the beginning, God in the middle, God at the end, God from top to bottom, side to side. We don't like some of you are like, I don't like that. I can see it on your face. I can see it on your face. You're tearing us down. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. Some of us need to be torn down so we can. But our sinful human nature and our pride, we don't like to hear that, do we? Because we are daily bombarded with all this information. You're good. You're a good person. You're inherently good. You know, we we hear it all the time. You have to think about yourself first. You have to you have to be assertive. You have to be self-confident. You have to build up your self-esteem. We hear this all the time. Those messages are diametrically opposed to what the scriptures teach. Those beliefs are in opposition to Christian beliefs. Now, it doesn't mean we walk around all the time with a sour look on our face. That's not what that means at all. We should be the most joyful people of all, the happiest people of all, people with the most hope, the most positive people, the most thankful people are people who have been saved from their sins and bound for heaven. But we recognize, right, the total depravity of man. Josh and I have been working through our Calvinism a little bit, trying to figure out how much of the tulip we really hold to. You can put Calvinism in an acronym, T U L I P. Don't put me to the test right now. But the T is total depravity. That doesn't mean I'm as sinful as I can be. It means that every single corner of my heart, soul, mind has been impacted by sin. We already heard no one is righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and what? Fall short. How many? How many are in the all? How many are in that category? Okay, I saw a couple hands. I hope you're just tired and you're not. uh... Telling someone that they're a sinner and that they need to repent. And we do that gently. We do that in love. We don't bang them over the head. But explaining that to a person is not a hateful thing. It's the only hope they have. It's the only hope they have. Because the message of the postmodern culture is the problem you have is outside yourself. There's something outside of you that's the problem. But what does the word of God say? The problem is where? It's inside of me. Mark chapter 7. For out of the heart comes. And he goes into this whole list. Mark 7, 20, 21, Why do we have all the problems that we have in our country right now? Why do we have all the problems that we have in the world right now? Why do we have all the problems that we have in our homes right now? Because man's heart is sinful and selfish and self-centered and rebellious. And to take the gospel of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is a message of hope, message of hope. The fourth thing about salvation or divine election is we have to remember that involves the Trinity. And these are things that are mentioned in First Thessalonians, chapter one. God, the father, chose you in Christ before the world began. God, the son, died for your sins on the cross. And God, the Holy Spirit, convicted you of your sins and regenerated you, then sealed your salvation and placed you in Christ. Salvation or divine election involves the father, the son and the spirit. That's a lot of firepower. That's a lot of power to save just one sinner. But let me tell you something. It takes all that power to save a sinner. Ready to roll or no? Okay. love it. I see smoke coming up from some pencils. That's awesome. Last thing Paul says about salvation, and this is the one you're going to like the least. <laughs> you can already see it on some of your faces. You were with me. Points one through four point five. I saw a little drop off there. What does salvation change? Huh? Your life. Salvation changes, changes your life. Some of you are starting to sweat, and I'm glad it's a holy sweat. Because you're thinking, wow, has my life really changed since I made a profession of salvation? Hmm. Some of you are thinking, has my life changed enough over the years of making a profession of faith? And what do we mean by change? We mean that repentance. Repentance doesn't stop once we accept Christ. There should be daily repentance, a daily turning away from sin and turning toward righteousness in Ephesians and Colossians. Go there sometime. Paul uses these phrases, put off and put on, put off these things, but put on these things. And some of you, I can tell by looking on your faces, you're a little fearful right now because you're kind of processing. You're thinking, am I really born again? And that's because maybe there's sin in your life. And one thing that sin does is it separates you from God. Even if you're a believer, your sin's going to separate you from fellowship with God. You won't lose your salvation, but sin will cause a rift between you and the Lord. And it will cause you to rethink whether you're really saved or not. But there has to be change in your life, there has to be growth. You have to grow in your knowledge of the scriptures. And you have to grow in your obedience to the Lord. That is a proof that you are born again. Now, sometimes there's a lot of growth. Sometimes there's not that much. Sometimes we hit valleys. Sometimes we're on the mountaintop. We're all growing at different levels, right? There's no ideal except the Lord Jesus Christ that will hit when we step into glory. He saw change in their lives. We see that in verse nine, don't we? Verses eight and nine, or actually just nine, I think. You turn to God away from idols to serve a living and true God. You know, we still have idol worship today, uh, not just made out of stone or carved out of wood, but we have a lot of idols of the heart. Things that we cherish more than Christ. Things that we love, things that we serve, things that we worship. Love, recognition, acceptance, comfort. You know, you name it, we got it. But those idols are competing for our heart. Uh, there should be a daily turning away from those idols. What's that say there? Those whom God chooses, he Let's say a little bit louder now, or I'm going to get discouraged. Those whom God chooses, he changes Thanks. Someone who claims to be elect, but whose life has not changed is what? Deceived is deceived. We are experts at convincing ourselves that everything is OK. We are experts. Because we're afraid, we're afraid. How were they changed? Well, we compare uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 to 2 Thessalonians 1 or uh, 2 Thessalonians. Uh, I can't see. I got on glasses. I can't see. First Thessalonians 1, 3 with verses 9 and 10. Because he mentions their work of faith, their labor of love and their perseverance of hope. Well, that translated into behavior on the Right. Their work of faith translated into their turning away from idols toward God. Their labor of love showed up in that they were serving the living and true God. And their perseverance or their patience and hope showed up because they were eagerly waiting in verse 10. They had an expectant attitude that the Lord would return. He saw changes in their life, proof that they were born again. Now, I'm sympathetic with you, and we're all in agreement with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. He said, the good I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do it. And when I do that, it is sin that's still living in me that I'm wrestling in. Oh, what a wretched man I am, Paul said. Even the Apostle Paul said, I want to do what's right, but often I find that I'm not. And I say, if the Apostle Paul is struggling with that, whoo, praise the Lord. I'm so glad to hear it. Because sometimes we think that the people we see in the scriptures or other believers around us, we think, wow, they got it together. I know you think that about me. Wow, he's really got it together. We can tell. He's got the glasses. He's got the shiny head. He's got it all. He's got the trophy wife. Everything. I think Paul said something. Help me, please, here to Timothy. Uh, Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I think he told Timothy Paul considered himself the worst of all sinners. That must have just been up until the day I was born. But we wrestle, right? We wrestle. It's good to take inventory. Paul told the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that doesn't mean work out your eternal life with fear and trembling. He's mean, work out your sanctification, meaning after you come to Christ, you have to work to grow in Christ. You cooperate with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't come with his spiritual maturity wand and wave it over your life. Ooh, super Christian, you know, like the. I don't know, that fairy on the old Disney, right? She would show up at the beginning. You know, you'd see the stars and everything. That's not, that's not how, that's not how spiritual growth works, is it? But folks, so many of us, and I'm going to say it, so many of us in this room are lazy Christians. We don't put in the work. We don't cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit to do everything. We don't quite understand what it means to wrestle with the sinful flesh and what Paul told the Romans to put to death the sinful flesh. And he told the Colossians and Ephesians to put off these things and to strive to put on these things. It's not easy. It's warfare, the Bible says. But Paul saw changes in their lives, and I want to encourage you. Almost all of you, I've seen changes in your life in the eight and a half years that I've been here. So we keep at it. We keep striving. So they were an elect people. Secondly, they were an exemplary people. Uh, This is a church that we should seek to imitate. What does he say about them? Verses five and six, they received the word of God. And then later in chapter two, verse 13, he says he kind of says they never lost their eagerness for the word of God. Some of us start out in the faith like gangbusters. And then after a while, right, we get a little tired, we get a little lazy, we get a little bored, we get a little apathetic. But he says these folks were exemplary because they received the word and they're still excited about the word. And I want to tell you, the only way to get excited about the word of God is to be in the word of God. And I will tell you, because of our sinful nature, the longer you stay out of the word of God, the less you're going to hunger for it. You only develop an appetite for what you feast on the most. You only develop an appetite for what you feast on the most. So I'm at Trader Joe's yesterday. If you're like me, I went in for one thing and forty three dollars later, I had the world's most expensive bag of chips. So I wanted chips. She was busy. She was doing ministry in Boyle Heights, so I went to buy snacks. Uh, Actually, I was studying, but I needed a snack break. But anyway, so I'm in the chip section. There's so many choices. But what did I go with? Because I think I went brain dead for a few minutes. Guiltless, reduced fat, kettle chips. Boy, did I regret that. Yeah. what What is a potato chip with no fat? You got nothing. You got a bag of air. You open it, it's empty. So I get back, I get on the table, I'm on the laptop, I put the chips in a bowl. You know, we have our whole ritual with food, right? We have our favorite dishes. My drink has to be to the right one o'clock of my bowl. You know, I have this whole thing. Maybe not. Maybe I'm revealing an idol. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> So I eat a couple of those chips. It's like, I don't know what it tastes like. It tastes like one of those white styrofoam cups we use at the potluck. It's, and it's like these, these don't even have salt. My favorite flavoring is salt. I put salt on everything. I put salt on my pizza. It's like I look at the bag. reduced sodium. I'm like, what, what, is, what is wrong with me? This is just disgusting. I want my fatty, salty Lay's potato chips. Those are my favorite in the yellow bag. Lay's note to self favorite Lay's yellow bag. I didn't have a taste for those reduced fat, low sodium chips, because that's not what I usually eat. That's not what I've eaten my whole life. Back in Indiana, I was a kid when I was a kid. The brand was called Seifert's chips, S-E-Y-F-I-E-R-T-S or something. But we only develop an appetite for what we feast on. You're not going to develop a hunger for the word of God or a hunger for the things of God unless you get up to the table and start eating. And that's what they did. They were exemplary in that. Secondly, they followed their spiritual leaders. Paul says in chapter one here that they became imitators of us and of the Lord And later, he says that they were imitators of other strong believers in other churches. They followed the leadership that God put in their lives and they imitated the good and the godly that was in those lives. Do you live a life that's worthy to be imitated? Do you live a life that other Christians look at and say, I wish I could be like him? I wish I could be like her or she responded this way. And so I'm going to try and do what she did because I know she loves the Lord or he loves the Lord. Do you live a life worthy of being imitated? And if not, then you need to work on that. And how do you live a life worthy of imitation? You imitate Christ. You imitate Christ. The third way they were Exemplary. Is they were willing to suffer for Christ, Paul says. From the get go, from their first day of salvation, they were suffering opposition. Faith is always tested, and persecution is one of the tests. He says later in chapter 2 you endured suffering at the hands of your own countrymen. Isn't that interesting? It's not like they were being persecuted by strangers. What he's saying there is your own countrymen, their friends, probably even family that were not happy that they had brought Christ into their life. And so they were persecuted for it. Faith will always be tested. Sometimes we don't like that. We don't want our faith tested. But faith tested brings blessing. It brings assurance. Fourthly, they were exemplary because they encouraged other churches, which is what we're going to do tonight. He says, you were an example. Uh, That means like a seal that marks wax when you're sending out a letter or uh, it could refer to a stamp uh, that's used to mint a coin. Uh, You want to follow that example, that repetition. Churches should not be competing with each other, but we should be stimulating each other to love and good deeds. It's interesting that in the Christian world, there is competition among churches. Uh, There sort of is uh, sometimes the uh, we either read into it or we're actually made to feel like we're not quite up to snuff if we're not doing this or we don't have this or we don't have 500 people here. Or, you know, sometimes there's competition or we think, well, we need to try this because this big famous church down here is doing this. Uh, That's not the way it should be. Every church is unique. Uh, Every body is unique and brings a unique set of gifts and strengths. And we use that to glorify God. We use that to reach the community where we are and where we live uh, without envying, without being jealous, without being competitive. Tonight, we're going to gather with brothers and sisters from most of our Grace Brethren churches in our district. I think we have 25 churches or so in Southern California. What are we going to do? We're going to worship together. We're going to fellowship together. We're going to tell stories and swap stories and update each other about what's going on in our lives and our ministry. And then we're going to have some good snacks, I hope. Or I'm not going. I should probably get a hold of Pastor Rich and find out what they're planning on serving. Yeah, no. But we're going to encourage one another. And Paul says that these young believers were an encouragement to all the churches around them. Interesting. They were an elect people. They were an exemplary people. They were an enthusiastic people. Paul says they received the word. And then what did they do after they received it? They transmitted the word. And what he uses, uh, it says in verse eight, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. It carries the idea of reverberating out Like when you drop a pebble or a rock in the water and the rings just go out and out and out. Or it could be referring to the sound of a trumpet announcing something. The call's gone out. They were enthusiastic. They had a local impact. They had a little broader impact because it says they had an impact in their whole country, Macedonia and Achaia. They had an impact in their own city, Thessalonica. But then he says what in verse eight, your faith toward God is known in every place. So we don't have need to say anything to anyone we come in contact with. They already know about you. So they had both a local and a global influence because of their faith. What does that mean for us? And Jesus kind of said the same thing. Jesus said to do that. uh, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In Samaria and Judea and all the other places. Notice how local out a little bit, out a little bit, out a little bit. We're trying to do outreach, church planting in Boyle Heights, but we don't want to forget about Norwalk either. We don't want to forget about your neighborhood where you live. You don't want to forget about your workplace, where you go every day or your school, where you go every day. Those are places of ministry, places of outreach. So it should be Outreach in your neighborhood. Outreach here in Norwalk from our church. Outreach in Los Angeles, Boyle Heights. And then the word about us goes forth. And you know what's interesting? I've gotten calls. I know Tim's gotten calls from people, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, had the CE board come. People have heard about some of the things we're doing. And it's encouraging and they want to know about it. That's what he's talking about here in chapter one. We don't take credit for that. We don't take glory or praise for that. That goes to God. But the scriptures ring true. We're trying to obey the scriptures by doing outreach in evangelism in Norwalk and in Los Angeles. And people are hearing about it. other believers and they want to know about it. That's how it's supposed to be. They were enthusiastic people. In that they knew and they practiced the truth that election and evangelism go hand in hand. Election always involves responsibility. God chooses us so that we then might witness for him. God always uses people to call out his elect. Notice that Paul says in more than one place in Thessalonians, he says, God called you by our gospel. And we gasp. Doesn't he mean the gospel of God? Doesn't he mean the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why is he calling the gospel his gospel, our gospel? Because he knew even though these people were elect in salvation, that God had chosen him and Silas and Timothy and others to preach the word and teach the word and evangelize because God was going to use them to bring out the elect from the world. There are believers who believe I believe in election. They say, therefore, I do not evangelize because God's going to save who he's elected. That's so easily refutable from the scriptures. Jesus said, stay at home and I will bring all the elect to salvation. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Is that what it says? Oh, my Bible's messed up. What's it say? Go into all the world. Preach the gospel and teaching. He wouldn't have told us to go into the world. He was really saying, go into the world. Be my instruments that draw out the elect that I have chosen unto salvation. You could be working alongside. You could be attending school alongside someone. You could be living next door to someone who's been elected unto salvation. And they're just waiting for you to obey God, to share the gospel. And then that person's going to come into the kingdom. Lastly. They were an elect people, they were an exemplary people, they were an enthusiastic people and they were an expectant people, he says that they had a steadfastness of hope in verse three, and by that you go to verse 10 to understand what he means to wait for God's son from heaven, the son whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus. Who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, wrath to come. Is he talking about the immediate suffering there in Thessalonica? Or is he talking about the tribulation period? We'll get to that later. You'll have to come back. I would just say yes is the answer. Okay. Their steadfastness, that word can also mean patience. It can also mean perseverance. It made them an expectant people waiting for Christ's return. The second coming of Christ was related to their salvation. Verse nine is talking about their salvation. Verse 10 connects their salvation to being an expectant people because they had trusted in Christ. They looked for his return with joyful expectancy. And knew they would be delivered from the wrath that was coming. Secondly, how were they an expectant people? Notice that a living God means a living hope. It may be a newsflash to some of us, maybe not. Our God is not dead. He is alive. Jesus Christ at this very moment is alive. Scriptures tell us that he's here with us right now. The scriptures tell us that he is active. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. He's at work, the scriptures tell us. He's interceding, he's working, he's guiding, he's directing, he's saving. And when these Thessalonians turned away from serving and chasing after and worshiping things that lead nowhere, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is... Death, the scriptures say. They turned to the one true living God and they then found that they had a living hope. So their hope was in Jesus Christ. So their hope to see him was persevering. They were waiting. That word wait is a very interesting word, because when you hear the word wait, what comes to your mind? When I say, wait, just a minute. Stop moving. Yeah, sit there. Don't do anything. That's not what the word here means. The word wait, usually in the scripture, involves activity and endurance. In other words, we prove our faith by keeping busy and obeying his word as we wait. We're active because we know he is going to return We get busy. You ever do that? When I find myself getting lazy spiritually or apathetic or that's maybe once every nine years. So it'll be coming up this summer. No, I'm just I thought, oh, I shouldn't say that. They're going to think, what? He gets apathetic and lazy. No, no, it's just an example. Okay. And this is also, I told you before on Wednesday nights, this is why I love funerals. What I mean by that is when I'm struggling spiritually, one of the things I'll do is I'll stop and remind myself one day you will be face to face with Jesus. It's real. It's going to be happened. It's promised. And by the way, I know many people who are now with him. I was at their funeral. I saw the casket. I saw the empty body. I cried. I was upset, but I was also full of joy because I knew they were with the Lord. And one day I'm going to be there. And then I think, he's going to want to talk to me, probably. I thought, well, maybe I could get lost in the crowd. There's going to be millions, right? Or volunteer to be at the back of the line. It'd probably take, what, 500,000 years before he got to me. But he's going to want to talk to me. Scriptures is called the Bema Seat Judgment for the Believers. And I think to myself. I don't want to have any regrets when I'm standing with the Lord. And you say, well, you won't have any regrets because you won't have a sin nature. No, no, no. Paul told the Corinthians. At the Bama seat, there's going to be some regrets. Regret doesn't necessarily have to be sinful. And I don't want to have regrets. I don't want to be afraid to talk to the Lord. So I remind myself. Uh, and that's the way I remind myself to be expectant, expectant, living expectantly, living with the thought in my mind. Also, that I could die today. I don't know. I don't know. I know some people see me jogging out there in the green belt and they say, he's not going to make it. I need to have my. <laughs> I see those Korean people that. That's. Uh, The Korean, the elderly Korean are the only people I see on the Greenbelt. And I know they got their finger on 911 when they see me coming. They're just waiting. We don't know, right? And I don't mean to be morbid, but just look around. Just look who's sitting next to you. Turn your heads. I mean, literally, look, you know, I know that it's difficult for some of you. If you're sitting next to Dave, thank you, Sandy. You had to you did us all a favor. No, I'm just kidding. Not to be morbid, but folks, true or false, is it possible that someone here today won't be with us next week? Is that possible? We don't know. We have to live at the expectation that we're going to be in the Lord's presence. That should motivate us to live holy lives. Lastly, I think, I don't remember. Is that last? Is there only three? Okay. Sorry. It's been a few days. They were expectant people because their expectation of the Lord's return is a great motivation for soul winning and for the Christian life, which is what we just talked about. He mentions it later in chapter two. He mentions it in chapter three. And living expectantly is also a wonderful comfort in sorrow and a great encouragement for godly living. He'll mention that in chapter four and chapter five to make it a reality Not just a theology. These people, one of the reasons they were exemplary is because they lived with that expectation. So here's your application questions to think about this week. These are great things to talk about amongst yourselves as well. Do you think of the church as being they or do you think of the church as being we and me? Sometimes when we talk about church, we're always thinking about other people uh, doing the ministry and following the Lord. But the church is you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the church. The church is not a building. The church is a group of people. So the first question is, as he asked them or he praised them, are you elect? Do you know for sure that you are born again? John chapter three. Are you exemplary? Is our church exemplary? Are we worthy of being imitated here at Norwalk Grace? And are we imitating the right people? That's another good question. You're imitating someone. Discipleship happens everywhere. You're discipled at work. You're discipled at school. You're discipled at home. Because those we spend time with disciple us. Are we imitating the right people? Are we enthusiastic here? Would you call our church enthusiastic, especially about sharing the gospel? It is the mission of the church to share the gospel. And fourthly, are we as a church, are you personally living expectantly? Are you daily looking for Jesus Christ to return and living as if he will return today? I'd love to have a song, but I don't sing. I don't know if someone could play. You want to just bang out a tune or Jessica could throw down something. I don't know. Because I want to give you an opportunity to look at these four areas. Think about all the ways that Paul commended these believers in Thessalonica. And we're tempted to say, well, is the church living up to this? We have to be careful with saying that to ourselves because we can kind of excuse ourselves by saying is the church because we're thinking the church as in they. A better question is, am I. As a member here at this church, official or non-official, am I living up to these things? And then we can say collectively, if we are individually, then collectively we are. So let's bow our heads and pray and just have he can play something but here's what I want you to do bow your heads close your eyes If the Lord has convicted you this morning of any of these four areas First off if you're convicted that you are not really born again then I want you to come and talk to me after church today uh, or grab one of the elders or another believer Or maybe you don't you know that you're not living an exemplary Christian life. Your life is not worthy of being imitated or maybe you're imitating the wrong people. Maybe you have not been enthusiastic in your faith, excited about the scriptures, excited about sharing the gospel. And you've really dropped the ball there. Maybe, you know, you're not living expectantly that the return of the Lord is the furthest thing from your mind. You're more wrapped up in the things of this world than the things of this life The sports and the music and the entertainment and the job and, you know, all that stuff is way more important to you than your walk with the Lord. I don't want you opening your eyes. I don't want you looking around. Please don't. But if that rings true for any of you, please just stand up so we can have a just stand up. Keep your eyes closed. Keep your heads bowed so we can just have a word of prayer. Father, just pray that you would help us. Uh, We need you in our lives. Father, we're so distracted. There's so much going on in the world and it becomes so quickly, becomes so important to us. It's like we start living for things. It's like we they start to dominate and control our lives as if they're so important and we're being spiritually blind. Father, help us to see the value in putting the kingdom of God first. Help us to live for things that will last forever. Father, some of us have gotten a little tired in our walk with the Lord, gotten a little lazy. Father, we pray that you would revive us. I pray that we would head back into the scriptures to develop that hunger for the word. Help us to be enthusiastic about our faith. Father, help us to live as expectant people. There's a lot going on in our country, a lot of problems. We can be tempted to be earthbound, but help us to be a light. Help us to demonstrate in our own lives that we're not living for this country. First of all, we're not living for this government. First of all, we're living for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing. So, Father, we praise you. We thank you for electing us unto salvation. Thank you for initiating that in our hearts, because we know if you had not taken the first step, we never would have come to you. We will praise you for eternity, for your grace and your mercy. I'm going to ask those that are standing to please go ahead and have a seat. Everyone keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for working in people's lives and hearts. Help us to be committed. Help us to follow through. Help us to turn our desires into doing. Help us to not just talk about it, but to be about it. And if anything good comes, we give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. Hope you were strengthened and encouraged. And don't forget elders, deacons. We have a little business meeting over there and others. Uh, Lord willing, we'll see you next week.